0: The, uh, we just left Hanukkah, and uh, next week is the fast of Asar B'Teves. Let's see if we can let's see if we can try and think through the um, <coughs> the issues that are happening now at this, at this time. You know, the, the idea of Greece and Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, that we had the chance to discuss a little bit during Hanukkah before and, and during, that is a... We are living now, we live now in the legacy of the Greek, <coughs> the Greek way of thinking. The Roman Empire, which, you know, what we call Edoim, the, the Western culture the Western block of nations among whom we live, excluding for now the, the Far East, which needs a separate discussion, and excluding the world of Islam, which also needs its own, have our own specific approach to our interaction with them. But the culture that we live in immediately, and particularly this time of year, when the culture expresses itself in a particular, particular way, we need to... <coughs> to relate to, and to know what is the, what's the Jewish approach, let's say, to, to this culture. <coughs> There's a particular difficulty with the subject, and that is that we, the, the essential difficulty, try to develop it, is that we have to try to understand these things from a Jewish perspective, and yet our perspective is theirs our minds have been trained right? we <coughs> what the, the effect of Greece on us is that it affects us internally so we have to do the almost impossible job of analyzing a situation where the tools have been denied us, not or we deny ourselves those tools perhaps and therefore the real work of this period is the work of refining the tools themselves that means that it's not simply a question of applying perception to a situation, it's a question of revising that perception that obviously is an extremely difficult thing. What you're trying to do is modify the tools with the tools. Now, it's easy to use tools to modify... Yeah, you can, you can modify a piece of wood with a suitable tool, but when you have to use the tool to fix the tool, <coughs> when the tool's broken, that's problematic. So let's slowly see if we can work our way through this. First of all, you know that... Um, the Medrash says, the Midrash says that the that Greece, the uh, the Posuk says, there's a verse that talks about different types of gairim. A gairim means, I guess, a stranger or one who dwells. Really, gair, stranger, sometimes means a stranger, sometimes means a convert, a dweller. The the root, the Hebrew root, means to to live with or to dwell. So, the verse talks about different types of strangers or sojourners or dwellers. And there are four expressions that are used. And the sages in the Medrash analyze each of them. Each different expression of different types of stranger refers to a different type of exile. But the one that we... You can look it up yourself. It's in the Medrash Tan Khuma. But on the parasha of the, of the um, of treating strangers and, and those who dwell among us in a particular way. But the Medrash there says that, that Greece... Of the four exiles that we've experienced, Greece is called a Gerit Toshav. Gerit Toshav is a remarkable concept. I don't know if you have a parallel concept in, in, in outside of Torah. A Gerit Toshav means a person who is a stranger who dwells among you. And halakhically, such a person has a very interesting definition. It's a person who's not a Gerit Tzedek. A Gerit Tzedek is a convert. A righteous Ger. Convert. That means somebody converts to Judaism. Such a person is Jewish in every sense of the word all Jewish obligations, privileges if that's the right word as well. In fact, there's a mitzvah to love such a person, perhaps doubly because of their various reasons. That's called a geritzedic. Ger- but there's an interesting category called a ger- toshev That's a person who lives in the land. It doesn't apply today, incidentally. We don't have our lachic status like that today. It applies only when the yovel applies, the, cosme- the, the jubilee cycle. We don't have that today. That's a person called the Ger Toshav. This individual lives in Israel together with the Jewish people at a time when the country is governed by Torah law, and their obligations are to keep the laws, to keep certain of the laws of the Torah, to keep certain of the laws in a particular fashion. To be specific, their obligation is to keep the seven laws of the non-Jews because it says so in the Torah. And in other words, an interesting cross here between a person who is not Jewish and a person who is. A person who is non-Jewish has to keep the seven laws of the Torah. Right? That's our, we understand that the Torah is binding on all of humanity. And just as no two people are, are the same, the different spiritual realities, you're a Kohen, you're an Israel, you're a man, you're a woman, you're a Jew, you're a non-Jew, each of those categories has its own binding, particular, unique set of halachic definitions and obligations. A non-Jew has to live according to Torah law, right? according to Torah law for non-Jews. It so happens that the system that's required is a system of seven commandments which have particular unique definitions. They are, they are clearly defined. They have very strict tolerances, much more strict than for Jews, for example. We have 613 mitzvahs. the Jew has 613 commandments. With certain tolerances and certain leniencies and certain <coughs> stringencies, non-Jews have seven. And as it happens, the stringencies of their seven are more exacting than ours. As it happens, they're seven. But they are more, they're more strictly enforced and enforceable. It's a different spiritual system. Jew and non Jew are two different spiritual entities. And a non Jew has that system. Incidentally there are non Jews today who live by those laws. are you aware of that? There is a I don't know if you're aware of this, there is a church today. there's a church today that's known as the Naha Church that is was originally a Southern Baptist American church, fundamentalist Christian church who discovered these laws, and they now, in fact, live according to these laws. They call themselves the noahites They have uh, dismantled all the steeples on their churches, and they've taken out all the Christian symbols. And they live according to the Torah law for non-Jews. In fact, I personally happen to know one of the rabbis who teaches them. They're attached to certain Jewish rabbis who have taught them, according to their request, how to live according to Torah law for non-Jews. Now, they have in fact, I'm familiar with some of an, one particular family where, where, f- where five boys in that family ended up converting to Judaism and studying Torah in Jerusalem. The father comes to visit, and he's a non-Jew, and he is a righteous Gentile. He lives according to the laws of <coughs> not, of, of the Gentiles. These people have very interesting interaction with their family. If you think about he has difficulty with his family trying to explain why he suddenly become an observant Jew. Can you imagine how these Southern fundamentalists? explain to their Christian families what exactly it is that they've discovered. It's not simple. It's not simple at all. It's a heroic pathway, but that's what they, that's what they do. It's a very interesting pathway. They'll try to live according to the, seven, the system of seven laws. And there's literature, and they have their own publications, and their own recorded material. You can, if you're interested, you can listen. That is what a non-Jew is required to do. To do. Then there's a situation called the Ger Toshav. This is a non-Jew who lives in Israel when Torah law is binding, not like now not that Torah law is not binding, but when, when the, the land is run according to Torah law, when the Yoval cycle is in effect and so forth, which is a redemptive situation that we don't have now, this gay Toshav is a non-Jew who lives among the Jews and is required to keep the seven laws of the non-Jews, but with a difference. Unlike, unlike a regular non-Jew, he is obliged, if he wants to achieve this particularly unique status, he has to keep the seven laws of the non-Jews because it was given in a Torah at Sinai. In fact, the Rambam goes so far as to say that if a non-Jew does that, it doesn't necessarily have to be a gay tertia, but if he identifies himself with the correct spiritual root of these laws, he has a share in the world to come. Just like a Jew, it's one of the reasons that we don't seek to convert people. It's not necessary. We don't only believe that there's one specifically Jewish way. We believe there is only one Torah, of course, but it doesn't mean you have to be part of that unique spiritual grouping that we call Jews. This person, if he lives or she lives that way, he or she is living according to the seven laws of the non-Jews in Israel, because it says so in the Torah that was given at Sinai. In other words, they are living as a non-Jew because they are observing those seven laws, but they are attached to what we would call Judaism, in the sense that they, the source of those seven is very specifically because the Torah says so. Now the halachic status of that non-Jew is a fascinating question in its own right, and now is not the time to go into it. There is a very interesting debate among our early authorities, whether such a non-Jew has to keep, Torah, keep Shabbos or not. Rashi holds that such a Jew, such a non-Jew in the Jewish situation like that, has to keep Shabbos. And Rashi's reason is because there is a notion that one who does not keep Shabbat is idolatrous. Shabbat, after all, is the dedication to the Creator of the world who created the world. Shabbos is, as it were, anniversary of creation. So desisting from creation one day a week is tantamount to asserting one's attachment to the Creator. Right? That's why... Judaism is virtually synonymous with the status of being a Shema Shabbos, keeping Shabbos. And therefore, one who doesn't keep Shabbat, in a sense, has an idolatrous element. So Rashi says that this Gay Toshav has to keep Shabbat, but Rashi is a lone voice. The other authorities hold that such a person does not keep Shabbat because the Shabbat is not one of the seven laws. It's a fascinating halakhic debate with its own very, very interesting questions and, and, and issues. However, what we need to extract for this evening's discussion is that there is such a person who is not Jewish, but is obliged in a certain way by Torah law for a Torah reason from a Torah source. This is a sort of intermediate zone. Not this Gary He resides in the land and he, he has his root there. On the other hand, he's not, he's not he hasn't chosen to convert and become that, that Jew. The question we need to ask is, what does Greece have to do with that? Why, when we identify the four exiles, not, why do we call why do we call that particular exile, that particular culture that we once suffered through, and we still suffer the legacy of today, namely Greece, what, was the, what is the connection between that culture and its ideology and this intermediate status of being somewhere between the non-Jewish and Jewish worlds? What does that mean? Furthermore, you know that what we celebrate next week, celebrate if that's the right word, is three days of sadness, really. Right? The 8th, 9th, and 10th of Tevez this month is the fast of the 10th, which is the 10th year next week, is the three days really celebrate or commemorate, if you like, three days of darkness that descended upon the world due to the translation of the Torah into Greek. Right? What happened was there were th- we have three days. We only really fast on the 3rd of them, the 10th of Tevez, but the 8th, 9th, and 10th celebrate three Commemorate three events. On the eighth of Teves is really the commemoration of the translation of the Torah into Greek. The ninth really is commemorating the death of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, the last members or among the last members of the men of the great assembly, the transition from the prophetic age really to post prophetic age, in a sense. That is the passing of that sage or those sages. And the tenth is the beginning of the siege, commemorates the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. In, the, in three years before the final breaching of the walls and destruction of the, first, of the first temple. But the siege, in fact, began then, and that is the day that's been fixed as the universally practiced fast day among the Jewish people on the 10th of Davis. But in fact, the Gemara says that three days of darkness descended upon the world when the Torah was translated into Greek. Each of these days has its own uniqueness. I don't have enough time to discuss all of them. The um, what the connection is, why these three days have a connection to the land of Israel and the siege and Jerusalem's destruction. Perhaps at this time we'll relate to that as well. The day before that, the 9th of Tabas, is the death of Ezra. Our sources, indicate, our sources indicate that on the day that Ezra died, the founder of Christianity was born. Right? The same dates. The founder of Christianity, which is its relevance to this time of year, again needs to be analyzed in detail. Really, Ezra was one of the men of the great assembly, and one of their prime functions, and certainly one of their last functions, was to end prophecy and close the canon. Scripture was closed then. As opposed to, and in in large measure, because of the notion that the Christian world would come along and reclaim prophecy and reopen the canon of Scripture. And in order to make it absolutely clear that there's nothing to do with Judaism, yes, that that's not... Anything added on to the scriptural, to the 24 books of Tanakh, has nothing to do with Torah. So there was a clear, and of course that is exactly the, the moment of dichotomy or, or schism, is on the day that they died and that work was completed, is when this new energy began in the world, which of course we still, we still, we still invest the, the, the culture of the West, and, and it's what we experience around us today. The translation of the Torah to Greek, which took place on the 8th, Needs to be understood. The paradox is that the sages themselves t- translated the Torah into Greek, and yet it's regarded as a tragedy. Three days of darkness descended to the world. The Gemara says the reason that darkness descended was because you could not translate the Torah. Right? You could not translate the Torah adequately. You can't, you know, translation is always problematic translation is always problematic, but certainly from Hebrew into any other language is not problematic, it's impossible. Hebrew is the holy language, the Lashon Kodesh, in which each word organically traces itself back to its root. Not only that, but the nuances of each possible, let's say, emanation of the root are all contained in the meaning of the word. There's no other language like that. All other languages are fragments of Hebrew that fragmented off during the experience of the Tao, when all human beings spoke one language, and human unity was fragmented by different languages coming into existence as sparks of the original language. So by definition, you can't translate Torah into another language. All you can possibly hope to do is translate what appears to be the very simplest meaning of the narrative, so to speak, in the words, right? But you can't translate Torah into another language. And therefore, toro, to when Torah was translated, <laughs> there was a fracture, there was a an incorrect revelation of, of that which should have been the correct spiritual Revelation, it came down to the world, and therefore there was a tremendous pain. The mystery is, if it was so painful, then why was it, why was it done? And why was it that the Torah learns, and listen, the Gemara says like this, the paradox well, the Gemara says that how do we know that the Torah is permitted to be translated into Greek? Listen carefully to this. The Gemara says we know you can translate the Torah into Greek because it says so in a verse. The Gemara derives the permission to translate the Torah into Greek from a verse in the Torah itself. It's not a rabbinic notion, right? but the Torah itself has an origin point, orig- point of origin in the Torah that tells you that you can translate the Torah text into Greek. Not only that, but in Greek it has a holiness. It's valid. We're not talking about that you can translate it. We're talking about translating a safer Torah into Greek, and that Greek document has, apart from beauty, right? the Gemara says the second most beautiful language on earth is Greek. That it has beauty. Greece has an innate beauty, but apart from that, it has the holiness of a sefer Torah, the laws of a sefer Torah, when you translate, and it's learned from a verse. The verse is Yaft Elokim leYefet yishkan beOhalay Hashem. Yaft Elokim Yefes. Hashem should give beauty, or will give, or gives beauty to Greece. Yefet is that third son of Na'ach, right, who was the founder of the Greek and later Roman genealogy mm-hmm. and idea. Hashem gives, God gives them beauty, or they are invested naturally with beauty. The Yishkan all Hashem, and the function of that beauty is to reside in the tents of shame. The Semitic peoples, namely us. In other words, you have a verse in the Torah that says that Greece is invested with beauty, and its proper place of residence is in the tents within Torah. In other words, among us. So you have here, first of all, what does that mean? What does it mean that the beauty of Greece, which we always present as anathema to us, I mean, the Greeks were... Were immoral. They, they 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 stripped the body and demonstrated its nakedness in a, in a worship of of the physical world of pure hedonism. They detached the world from its spiritual p- p- source. That's exactly what the Chanukah battle was all about. And yet the beauty of Greece somehow has a proper residence within within Torah. What does that mean? Secondly, you see it's a mitzvah. You see it's not it's permitted. You see the Torah actually says itself that it's done. And yet we find that when the sages translated the Torah, Greek darkness descended, them, we fast for that. What exactly is going on if the Torah itself allows it and invests with sanctity the translation of the Torah into Greek and yet we fast when it happens. What what exactly is, what does this mean? There's a very, I hope you're beginning to hear already this middle ground of something that that is not but is. It's outside and and problematically so and yet it has a residence within us. I mean this is the problem with our minds of course. This is the problem with this mixture in our minds. That's our problem and I'm trying to make that clear. Or rather, make the confusion clear, if you know what I mean. And if you don't, then you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> when the Torah was translated, what happened was Ptolemy, king, the king of Greece, of, of uh, he happened to be the Greek ruler of Egypt at the time. The Greek, the Greeks, were split into three domains. Not in Greece itself was one set of rule. There was another domain that the Greeks held sway over, which was located in Syria. And it was the Syrian Greeks who invaded and controlled Israel. And therefore, Hanukkah was really the battle against that third of the Greek empire, right? Which was represented by the Syrian Greeks. And there was a third column of Greek rule, which was based in Egypt at the time. King Ptolemy was the Egyptian Greek ruler at the time. And he forced the sages of his day to translate the Torah into Greek. And what happened was he gathered 72 of the, of the elders of the time, talking about a very, very great period of Jewish history, people of tremendous depth, perspicacity, Torah wisdom. And without telling them why he had captured them, or, or uh, um, um, taken them, he put each of them in separate rooms where they had no possible contact with each other. And then he personally went into each room and he said to each sage, I want you to translate your Torah into Greek. What he wanted was a translation that he could verify by seeing yeah, it's points of accord and discord. He didn't want them to get together to make a, a, a collusion, yeah, an effort of collusion. So he separated them before he told them what he wanted. And then he went into each room and he said, Translate your Torah into, into Greek, your Chumash, right? Into, into Greek for me. And what happened was the sages all translated the Torah miraculously exactly the same. Most specifically, Most specifically on a number of points that were problematic in translation. There are a number of points that are very problematic in translation. And in those points, they deviated. The sages deviated. Each sage, instead of translating those words accurately, changed the literal translation into a Greek version that made sense in Greek. Right? Because each of those, if there's time, as we go through some of those, each of those particular issues, had it been translated literally, would have caused philosophical, religious, or anti-Jewish problems. And therefore, But the miracle was that each of these 72 sages made exactly the same changes. Not? I mean it's very bitterly been joked uh, you know, a very bitter joke in this generation which is not it's one of those jokes that is so true that it hurts is that had the, the sages all sitting in different rooms agreed Right, the real miracle would have had them, been, had them all sitting in the same room and got them to agree on it. That. that would have been a real. to get seventy-two Jews to sit in the same room and agree on what the changes should be. That would have demonstrated a real miracle, right? To get them to sit in different rooms and agree. No, you know that's, you know, that's not as uh, not as funny as it you know as it may appear. But at the level of those stages, of course, it wouldn't have been an issue. They each of them miraculously was mechavan. That means he, he struck, directed himself, or a, uh, how do you say, intuited, the correct, the, the, correct, the correct alteration to make so that the Torah was translated. And those, those alterations were ones that the Greek mind could only get wrong, right? that the Greek mind could not perceive accurately. For example, they changed, uh, for example, the very first verse of the Torah. The very first verse of the Torah is, In the beginning God created. So they changed to say that God created in the beginning. Because they were worried that if you translated it literally, in the beginning, Bereshis bara Elokim. If you translate that literally, it means in the beginning created God. Mm-hmm. So you could read that horribly wrongly as to mean that there was some being called in the beginning who created what we call. Yeah, you could. Yeah, it sounds wild and outlandish, but there, there is such mistakes can be made with with a certain. Certain cogency. We're not talking about excluding foolishness. Obviously, they didn't. They didn't uh, miraculously uh, hit on the same alterations to exclude fools. These are very deep issues, and they translated that. And similarly, they they mistranslated. They deliberately all mistranslated the verse that says, "Na se odom, let us make man, let us make man in the plural, because they thought that the Greek mind would read that and understand that there are multiple gods, as the Greeks in fact did do, and therefore they could not bring themselves to translate it that way. So they translated. I shall make man. Right? They, they translated the verse that says, Let us go down and confuse their language. A very poignant verse. So the verse that means, the, in fact, the origin of Greek. Right? Along with all other languages. God said, Hashem said, Let us go down. Right? In English it sounds natural, because we have the royal, in English we have a royal expression, the royal we. In English we used to expressing a royal plural. Right? So it doesn't sound, but of course literally in the Torah, there's no yeah, th- That royalty is the ultimate royalty. And it means to put it in the plural is, is problematic. In fact, we need to discuss why the Torah puts it in the plural. It's not so simple. Why does the Torah phrase it in the, in the, in the plural? You have to think about that. But nevertheless, the words, if we get time, perhaps we'll try and go through that. But the words say, let us make man. Let us go down and, and interfere with their language. So translating that literally would have been very problematic. So they translated... In the singular, I shall go down and write in the singular in order to avoid that problem. And there were others, there, was, uh, there, were, others. there were other things that, that raised <laughs> issues and problems. There were philosophical problems and moral problems. There's, there's one word in the Torah that happened to be a translation of an animal, meaning arnevet. Arnevet in Hebrew is a, one of the species of, of, of uh, hare or um, rabbit or jackrabbit that is discussed in the Torah, and the heading of kosher non-kosher animals, Ptolemy's wife was called Arnevet. Her name was that, and in order that they shouldn't think that they were mocking the queen, they translated that in another fashion. They, uh, each one had its own particular, own particular reason. And they, they, they translated them all. The Greek mind could not hear certain... <coughs> when we say Greek, you have to, we mean, yes, not just those Greeks, we mean us Greeks. That has... We have trouble hearing. We have to relate to a certain depth in our Jewish neshamas here to understand. It's not <coughs> we, are, we are, as I said before, we are children of the culture in which we, we live. It. Unfortunately, we are not children of, Jew, truly children of Jewish cultural thinking. But the Greeks have trouble. Why, just to take one, we don't have time to, to go through them all, and I don't have the depth of knowledge to tell you the depth behind all of them. But, for example, when it says that... Um, they translated, let us make man, right? "Naase adam" it says quite clearly in the verse, "Naase adam." you don't have to be a Hebrew expert to know that "naase" is plural, let us. So the midrash deals with this. The Madras, in fact, has a fascinating discussion. The Madras says that when, when God dictated the Torah to Moshe, when Moses was writing down the Torah, God's dictation, when Hashem said to him, write naase adam," let us make man, Moses stopped writing. Moshe Bani couldn't bring himself to write the words, let us. So Hashem said to him, what's the problem? So Moshe said, I can't write, let us, about you. Because people may make this error and think that you are more than one. So Hashem said, listen to these amazing words. The Medrash says, Hashem said, Moshe, ksev. Moses, write. And the one who wants to make an error, let him come and make an error. And Moshe Rabbeinah wrote down the words in the Torah that we have today, let us make man. Then the Medrash says, but why? But Why? Moshe, you have to understand, We're talking about the highest human being who ever lived. He perceived that a human being could read these words and read them wrongly. So why did Hashem, why was he insistent that he should write, let us make man introduce the problem? The Medrash explains, the Medrash says that the Torah writes, now nah, say, Adam, let us make man in order to teach you an important principle. What important principle? That when you make a decision, you should, you should confer with your subordinates. That means when Hashem wanted to create man, he consulted his subordinate beings, the angels and his own mitres, his own... The, the Medrash says he asked the quality of truth and the quality of peace and the quality of, ju- of justice. He called them all together. In fact, the Medrash is fascinating. The Medrash says that Hashem called together the qualities of truth and peace and justice. And he said, "Should we let or shall we make man? And they broke out an almighty argument. The quality of truth said, don't create him, he's full of lies. He'll be full of lies. The quality of Shalom said, don't, peace, don't create him, he's full of friction, full of conflict. The quality of Mishpat, of Stocker of, of said, create him, he'll, he'll do kind deeds. And the Medrash said that while they were having this cosmic argument, Hashem created man. Right? And of course, the, the mistake here, the insensitive here, here, is that he bypassed the argument. While they were arguing, since they couldn't resolve the issue, yes, he did not take their advice, and left them to argue while secretly on the side, he made man. Of course, the correct understanding is, he did take the advice. He made man a product of this conflict. He took exactly... Their advice was, you understand what's happening? Man is, in fact, a creature who's uh, b- born of the conflict between his desire to be whole and at peace and, his, and he, uh, the conflicts that he has, right? The struggle that he has to maintain truth in a world that urges him to, to speak lies. He made exactly that man that their argument dictated, right? That's what he did. But be that as it may, you learn from, this, you learn from this, this verse that when you make a decision, you should not make a unilateral decision. If you're a family person, you should ask the members of your family... They're not bound to take their advice. You're not bound, b- but you are directed by con- Torah, good conduct, to confer. You, you, you run an office. Before you do anything <coughs> significant in your office, you should ask the people who work for you, even if they are very subordinate. And if, even by rights, they should have no say. And even if you override their, their view. But you should take them into account. Call them together and ask them. It's called derech eretz. Derech eretz means good, what you call good etiquette or good Torah manners, a, a refined person operates in that, in that fashion. You don't steamroll and bulldoze yeah, through people's opinions. You call them together, you, you get their opinion. And therefore, Nase Adam teaches you that. Now the Medrash asks the following question. And the later commentaries, I heard this from Rav Simcha Vassaman, and he quoted his father's name and what the Chavitz Chaim said about it, very interesting, that Briskarov said, is that you have here a very interesting <coughs> thing. What is the advantage Yeah, no, <laughs> What's the advantage? Why do you want to write? Let us make man? Why do you want to do that? To teach me a point of good conduct. Don't make unilateral decisions. Consult your co- your, your subordinates. What do you stand to lose by writing nase adam? Everything. Does that make sense? Again, what are you going to gain by writing the plural? You teach a minor point, not even a mitzvah, just a minor point of good conduct when you run a communal effort. <coughs> what do you stand to lose if people read it wrongly? Faith in Hashem. You think that too. two. You know, Rasimcha used to say, the analogy would be, if I said, you want to go into business with me? So you say, well, if we're successful, what do we make? You say a hundred pounds. I say a hundred pounds. Then you say, "And if we lose, I say, you lose everything you have. Who would go into a business to deal like that? No, well, you wouldn't go into a business to deal like that. What is the Torah doing? The Torah wants to gain here a very small point of human good conduct in, in personal management, personnel management, and is prepared to risk the most basic aspect of all spirituality, belief in one God. Do you, do you hear the problem? That doesn't make any sense at all. But listen to God's answer, listen to Hashem's answer. He said, Moshe, Moses, You write, write these words, The one who wants to make a mistake, the one who wants to make a mistake, is not stopping him. The person who wants to read those words wrongly, the person who's got a vested interest, the one who wants to read Torah wrongly, you will never prevent that person making a mistake. He'll make a mistake. Because no matter how cautiously you guard your words, the person who's reading with a vested interest will always read in what he wants. If you put, let me make man, he's going to take the word Elohim, God, which is a plural word, and he'll say, you see, his mouth." There's no stopping the one who has jaded or... or, or he has unobjective eyes. And therefore, the words are so, so clear. Haroite said, the one who <coughs> wants to make a mistake, let him make a mistake. We can't prevent him. The Torah is not written for fools or willfully wicked, biased and, and subjective eyes. It's not written for them. It's written for those who want, the one who wants to see it right will see it right. And the truth is, in all two or 3,000 years, over 3,000 years of Jewish history that we've had the Torah, no Jews has ever read, read those words wrongly. No Jew has ever come up with those words and said, you see, there's more than one God. Right? Because the one who wants to make an error, you won't stop, and the one who wants to see it right can be trusted to see it right, even where the words could be taken wrong. But they couldn't trust the Greeks to read those words thus. And therefore the sages translated that word conveniently for non-Jewish eyes, or Greek eyes they translated it as, and so forth, when it came to all the other, to all the other. Um, let, us, let us, for example, Boratius Boro in the beginning created, because the Greeks had a theory of constant, permanent existence. The Greek theory was, in fact, that matter had always existed, and if anything, there was a Godhead that, that, so to speak, worked with primal matter, that was an error the Greeks made, and therefore the sages changed that, and so forth and so on throughout all of these these changes. So you see that the Torah is translated into Greek, but it needs to be translated in a certain way, and that way introduces these problems, and that problem of translating a Torah into another language, even though it's Greek and has incredible beauty, Darkness descends upon the world. At best, you can only translate the literal meaning. You know, there's a fascinating Gemara. Gemara says in Megillah, I heard this as well from The Gemara says like this, fascinating Gemara. Gemara Megillah says that when when Nach was translated, you know, Torah consists of the first five books, (coughs) which we call Chumash, and then you have 19 other books of Judges, Prophets, Kings, Tehillim, etc., all the way through what we call Yomim Chronicles. You have a number of other books. When Nach was translated, when the rest of Torah was translated after the first five, right, in what's known as the Targum, which is an Aramaic, Aramaic is a fascinating language. It is a sort of a, a, sort of descended Hebrew. Aramaic is like a, it's like an impure emanation of Hebrew, right? Which is uh, many of our commentaries are written in in, in Aramaic. The Talmud is written in that language. When we say Kaddish in Aramaic, when the, when Nach was translated, the Gemara says there was an earthquake in Israel over 400 passes. 400 passes is like a, a square measure of the area of Israel. There was an earthquake there when the land shook at the shock of the revelation of certain things that were being translated into, into Targum. Why was there an earthquake? So the Gemara says they're very esoteric, the Gemara says because they couldn't translate the word Hadadrimon. There's a verse in Nach that talks about a battle that took place in the valley, the Bik'at Hadadrimon, in the valley of whatever this word means, this, this place name. You couldn't translate that word, and therefore there was a, there was a, a shaking of the ground, right? The, the land of holiness shook at the shock of the problem of not being able to translate this word. That's what it says. So Rav Asaman, that's what the Gemara says. Rav Asaman, great Torah mind that he was, he asked the following question. There's no record of any earthquake taking place when the Chumash was translated. You know, the Chumash was translated into, into Aramaic too, right? The Targum, <coughs> the first five books. Five books of Moses, Chumash. They were translated into Aramaic. There's no record of any earthquake. Surely you would expect more of an earthquake to have happened when the when the center of Torah was translated. Surely more problematic things must have happened over there, right? Then when you translate Nach into Aramaic, how come when Nach, which is on a lower level, there's no question, it's it's prophetic, it's divine, but it's not Chumash, right? There's no mitzvahs in Nach, for example, only qualifications of mitzvahs. <coughs> That's called Divrei Kabbalah. It's called the received tradition. Where that was translated, there was an earthquake. When, when Torah was translated, no earthquake, the land was still. So what used to explain like this, it's a very beautiful thing to understand, is that the difference between Chumash and Nach is this. In Nach there are things that are untranslatable. Why? Because, you see, the word Hadadrimon is a mysterious word. It's a neighborhood place, but it means something too. And what it means is hidden. It's hidden because the, 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 the scripture, the prophetic voice, did not want to reveal what it meant and therefore it couched or hid the meaning in a word that sounds like a place name. Now when you come to a word like that, how do you translate it? If you, will not tra- if you will translate the word and give its meaning, you're revealing that which was meant to be hidden. Because in the original it was not revealed, it was couched in a word that did not indicate its meaning. So if you try to translate it, you're revealing something improper. On the other hand, if you don't translate it, then you haven't done a translation. You see, so there's an oscillation here between these two options, and that's what an earthquake is. It shakes back and forth here. right? But in Chumash, you never strike such a problem. And the reason is because the hidden meanings in Chumash are so deeply hidden that you never have the conflict. Rav Basman used to put it this way. You can hide a thing in two ways. One way you can hide a thing is called Nistar. Nistar means it's hidden. But there's another way you can hide a thing, and that's called Mechoseh. In Hebrew, Mechoseh means covered. The difference between covered and hidden is this. And I'll never forget the way he used to illustrate it. I mean, you have to see the, the comic humor in this. Talking about it. A great sage in his 80s he used to actually demonstrate it for us physically. He used to say, when I go through customs, you know, through the, through the, you know, there are two ways I can carry something with me that I do not want the man to see. One way is like this. You know, with a bulge under the coat. Right? That's called mechuse. That's called covered. Covered means he does not see what I have, but he sees that I have something. That's called covered. There's another way called nista. That's when it's sewn into the lining of the coat. There he does not see what I have, but he doesn't see that I have something either. He used to say this, Nach is written in such a way that the secrets in it are mechuse. The secrets in Nach, you do not perceive what they are, but you perceive that there's something there. When you come to the word hadadrimon, you can see that there's something bulging, and you can see that you can't see what it is. But when you read Chumash, there's nothing that bulges. The craft, as he used to put it, in the writing of Chumash, understand, the divine emanation, the depth of Chumash is such that you can read the whole Chumash without knowing, put it more plainly, you could be a six-year-old and read all of Chumash and translate it all perfectly, without any awareness of anything that is thing. Whereas in Nach, you'll come to these words that are essentially untranslatable and will alert you to the fact that there's something... That's the problem with a... That's the problem with the translation, and therefore chumash you can translate simply, but that is to say you're not only missing the depth, you <laughs> even missing the fact that there is depth beneath the surface. Not even that would you realize. At least enough you'll have an earthquake when you come to certain words because you shake with the knowledge, with the desire to know what's being said. And therefore, when the Torah is translated, any part of Torah is translated, this darkness descended to the world. Greek is called Greece is called darkness, right? Cheshek darkness is Greece because they darkened our eyes with their decrees. And this is the darkness that descends to the world, the Torah is translated into Greek. Now, what's the meaning of this conflict that the Torah is translated into Greek, and we learn it from a verse which indicates that it has a kadusha, which means it's allowed and carries a sanctity, and yet there's a morning. There's a fast and a morning when this happens. What does it mean? And the answer is very, very difficult for us to hear. So let's try and, (coughs) exceptionally difficult for us to hear. We don't speak the language, in other words. The problem is this. Greece has a wisdom and a beauty that is, that is indescribably great. But it has to be attached to a spiritual source. Right? The, the, the greatness of Greece, let's make it more plain, the greatness of the culture that we inhabit, the greatness of the West with all its technological wisdom and all its philosophical wisdom that it derives from Greece. The Roman Empire, the, the Western culture, has nothing except what it derives from Greece. Right? Except what it derives from Greece. Its spiritual core is Christianity. And its external wisdom is its philosophy and its technology and its science. Incredibly impressive. That comes from Torah too originally. That originally comes from Torah as well. The technology around us, the wisdom around us that we see, right? The incredible proofs of, of tremendous insight and wisdom, technological ability and manipulation. That all comes from Torah too. The Torah describes that wisdom as handmaids to the inner wisdom. That there are seven handmaids, including mathematics and music and. There are seven sciences that were, that are handmaidens to the inner wisdom of Torah. They were originally part of Torah. Our tradition, in fact, says if you want to know where it originally split off, was in the meeting between Jacob and Esau, when Jacob and Esau met. You know that Yaakov sent gifts to Esau? He sent a carefully organized sequence of gifts, so many of this and so many of that, with a space between them, right? In incredibly meticulously organized, one of the messengers used to say, like a ribur shall fill you know, like a meticulously measured shape of tefillin, he sent this gift to Esau. Right? And the verse says that when the Mashiach comes, Malche, the verse says that the kings of certain places, the kings that are the kings of the, the legacy of Greece and Rome, <coughs> they will return the gift. They will return the gift, meaning, the commentaries say, that in the Messianic age, the non-Jewish nations will bring back these gifts into the world of Torah. And the, 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 the sensitivity is it does not say, Mincha Yaviu, they will bring a gift. It says, Mincha Yoshivu, they will return a gift. They will not bring gifts yet to, in homage to Torah. They will return, what do you mean return? Meaning that these were the gifts that were originally given by Yaakov. What Yaakov gave Esau were the aspects of Torah that became technological and scientific wisdom. They were also part of Torah. Torah is all knowledge. Torah is cosmic knowledge, it is universal knowledge, it isn't only the spiritual connection. It is all wisdom in the world. He gave away to the non Jewish nations that wisdom, they became very great in it. And we retained our function, which is connecting all of that wisdom to its source, showing that the inner axiom of all those axioms is a connection to spirituality. Right? In fact, it's not accidental that the statement, the, the verse says, hein yiras Hashem hi listen to the beauty of this. Hein, hein is like hard to translate. It's like a contraction of the word hine behold. Hine yiras Hashem, yichochma. Fear of God is wisdom. Meaning, meaning that the first principle in real wisdom is knowledge of Hashem. That means, if you want to look for what they, to put it again plainly, in modern, in modern physics, what they're looking for is what they call guts. Now they're looking for in modern physics, grand unifying theory, G-U-T, gut the, the grand gut of the world. Right? That's what the grand unifying theory. They know that there must be one theory that ties everything together. How they know, don't ask me. But in their in their non-Torah, non-Jewish minds, they know that there must be one theory. They're not satisfied because they've not found yet. There are a few candidates for theories, but none fully satisfactory. The, the current problem in physics is how to tie relativity and quantum mechanics together. Each one can be explained relatively fully, but you cannot, there's no accident that ties them both together. And that's what's being searched for, sought. How do they know that there must be, why should there be one theory? Who told them that there must be one theory that ties all theories together? But you know how they know it? Because in the inherent in this idea of wisdom is that there's an underlying cause that gives expression and explanation to all the, all the outer details. In other words, what is wisdom? Take any science with which you are familiar. What's your field? Medicine, engineering, mathematics, whatever it is. In any field that you know, wisdom does not mean knowing the details. Wisdom means knowing the underlying principles. Is that correct? Wisdom does not mean knowing the details. If you have happened to observe the details many times, and you can give them a right answer because you recognize the details, that does not mean you understand anything. All it means is you recognize a pattern. Wisdom means you know the causes. Yeah? If you hang around with a doctor long enough, and you see that every time the patient goes like this, you give him a certain tablet, so the next time you see a person go like this, you give him a tablet, you'll probably be right most of the time. But occasionally you'll be disastrously wrong. Why? Because all you've observed is the superficiality and you've made observations. But the person who knows understands the underlying causes that give rise to these observations. That's the difference between knowledge and real wisdom. And therefore, there's there's an axiomatic in the notion of science, or logic in fact, is that there are underlying principles that are the main issues, and they explain the outer manifestations. And therefore, it's clear to them that there must be one set of axioms, or in fact, one principle that underlies all others. The Torah tells us what that is, and that's knowledge of Hashem. The Torah tells us that the underlying axiom behind physics, I'm not talking religion now, I'm talking science, the underlying axiom behind all of science is, is, is spirituality. It's the, that is the grand unifying theory of the world. Hain, you know what the, the commentaries say? hein yiras Hashem hi The word Hain means one in Greek. The word Un, yeah, the word Uni, Hain yeah, expressed in Hebrew, the commentaries say, that word means one in Greek. Isn't that unique? Isn't that remarkable? What they're saying is that the the ultimate underpinning of all wisdom is the oneness of spirituality. And what word is chosen in Torah to indicate that? The Greek word for one. Do you hear what's this amazing thing? The Torah had to resort to Greek? The Torah had to resort to a word that has a Greek nuance? But that's exactly the point. Greece, the function of Greece, the beauty of Greece, is to unify all wisdom. In the tense of shame, to be in the spiritual ambit, within the ethos, Within, the, within that arena, yes, of spirituality, where all is one, is the correct and most inexpressibly beautiful place of, of Ephesus, that, that, that's where you should be dwelling. The beauty of Greece, its aesthetic notion, and its scientific wisdom, and its deep philosophy, all of that belongs under the umbrella, in the, in the arena of the spiritual oneness, that is Torah, that's where it should be, and that's where it's allowed to be. But the problem is, when you bring it in, the problem is, when you bring it in, then it starts speaking for itself. And therefore you have this oscillation, this paradox. The function of Greece, the function of that incredible perception and wisdom. You know, the Rambam and others, they point out that the Greeks in the sphere where, where they were fit to deal, in the sphere below prophecy, they saw as far as any human being can see. Right? Their perception in philosophy, their perception in the, in the observations that they made of the world, in their analysis of the world, were beyond description. In terms of its depth and correctness and perception. But there's prophecy too is that which links it all to a higher source. When it's correctly disciplined, and it's a true handmaiden, then it's part of Torah. And the problem is that it speaks for itself, it doesn't want to be there. It's this Gary Toshav, do you see the connection? It's this person who is half in the world of what Torah and Judaism is, and this person who's half not there. He's observing the laws, Yeah, he's observing the law. This is the this is what Greece is, and can be, and should be, and is not. And of course, that is the subjugation of the Jewish mind. What Hanukkah represents... What Hanukkah what represents most deeply is the subjugation of the Jewish mind to this conflict. You have to understand that where the problem is, is in here. The problem is not out there in Greece. The problem is in the Jewish mind. The, the problem is that the tools, our tools, are Greek tools. We don't have that unifying concept that is Torah. Even when we think we're thinking religiously, we are thinking Greek. And how do you speak to a person who thinks like that? How do you speak to him in a language? You know, let, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. You know, what are the three days... The three days are three days of the beginning of exile. The Torah is translated on the first day, it goes into exile. Right? There's an exile of Torah. Torah has now gone out into Greece. The Torah has been exiled by Greece. you know what that means? It's living under Greek influence and domination. So you have no access to Torah. You try and learn Torah like a Jew. But every concept that you come across, you hear in Greek terms. Right? The culture around us and what you see out there and what they're celebrating now, right? that has a tremendous hold, tremendous hold on this. I don't want to speak too much about that. And the third element you see, the third element is Israel itself. What was the third day? When Israel became besieged and went into exile, there's a problem with the land too. When these things happen in Israel, the problem is far accentuated. Far accentuated. What happens inside Israel, the exile of Torah and the exile of the Jewish mind in the land of Israel is far sharper than it is elsewhere. Put it this way, the clue, the gay toshav is only valid in Israel. That's where he lives, that's where the conflict is. Let me try and illustrate this as best I can without getting political. Let me try and illustrate this. What happens when you try and speak to somebody and the language is perverted? Please stay with me closely. Imagine you're trying to express your love to someone you love. And as you say the words, you're writing a letter. Yeah? All you have to communicate with this person is a letter. And you pour your heart out in depth with, with the tremendous outpouring of articulate expression of your love for this person. But the letter gets censored. But it has to pass through a cipher. And, they, and what they do with the letter is they translate into the concepts that they, they think are proper to be expressed. And the more deeply you pour out your intensity, the more it gets translated into somebody else's concept. And then the person writes back to you and it goes through the same process. What kind of relationship can you have? What kind of relationship? You think you're relating. You're to all writing a letter and you're receiving a letter back. But there's no communication at all. Somebody else's mind is interposed here. Do you know... Let me try and make it as close as I can without getting lynched. <coughs> Do you know that the Jewish people never spoke Hebrew? Do you know that as a spoken language? From the first exile, from the time of the first temple... The Jewish people never spoke Hebrew as a spoken language. I heard one of the great Torah minds of this generation say that people should have gone out to die. Yes? To give their lives when Hebrew was adopted as the national Jewish language in the land of Israel. Why? Why did the Jewish people never use Hebrew? Let's get this absolutely clear. Do you know when Hebrew was last used by us as a spoken vernacular? During first temple times when prophets were around and everybody spoke prophecy. Everybody lived on the level of a revealed language then only Hebrew could and was spoken. But from the time prophecy ended, from the time of that first exile, the Jewish people never used Hebrew as a spoken language. Even if they had to construct another language, like the Svarim constructed Lidino, and the Ashkenazim constructed Yiddish, they made up another language rather than, resort, rather than use Hebrew. Why? <coughs> Stay with me carefully. This is so counterintuitive to us who have been brought up with a state, and the knowledge of the pride of speaking Hebrew. It's so counterintuitive to us. Which understand how this is Greek, not in Torah terms. You know why the Jewish people never spoke Hebrew? Because when you speak a language in the mundane mode, when you speak a language when you're three and four and five years old, then the words become invested with the meanings of an age and a culture and a an a, and a, and a, and immaturity. And once, they, once they're impregnated with those meanings, the words can never have a higher meaning. If you speak a language, if you're not on the level of prophecy and you speak a language, then when you're older you try to invest that language with a transcendence and an abstraction. You never can do it. You never can do it. Let me try and make this plain. You know, the way we can do this exercise successfully let's take it completely out of the emotional realm let's translate it into English. That way you'll have, we, neither of us will have any emotional problems. And once I've convinced you we'll take it back into Hebrew. Can we do that? What happens when you use English words? The words come loaded with their non-Jewish religious and cultural significance. You can never escape that. You can never escape that. All our notions of religion and spirituality are pictures of medieval Dutch and Italian paintings. There's no way... When you say God, when you say the word God, you see a man in the sky with a white beard, and if you say you don't, you're lying through your teeth. (laughs) And if I say the word angel, or hell, or or any English word, it is loaded with... If I talk about a saint, you see a person in a medieval Dutch painting with a little glittering ring levitating above his head. That's what you see. That's what a saint is. You know, when I first taught in Osamer, we had to give an hour a day teaching to, to a new person. So once they gave me a new fellow, it was the beginning of my experience, And we started talking, so I said to him, We're going to talk about angels. Angels. And as I said the word, I saw a very interesting thing. I saw in the back of his eye, flitting across his retina, I saw a little naked child flapping across the scene with a little white pair of wings, followed by another one with the little. That's what I. So when I saw that in his eyes, This is a young American fellow. I said to him, of course, you realize we're not talking about little naked children with wings on their backs. I said, you realize we're talking about transcendent emanations of energy from the source of... Ooh, then we were flying. Then we were flying. (laughs) And so, now that then once we had agreed that we were talking about transcendent emanations of energy, everything was fine. And the next time I said the word angel, there it was, flapping across his field of vision, (laughs) this little child with his wings. So I learned the hard way. There's no way you can communicate like that. So you know what happened? The next time I lived with a fellow, I retreated and escaped into Hebrew. I said to him, he's a young American, he had no Hebrew at all. I said, we're going to talk about malachim." He said, what's malachim?" I said, transcendent emanations of energy from the source of the soul. And there was no problem, we got through the whole lesson without... Why? Because our words, do you understand? Our words are so contaminated, they're so perverted, they're so prostituted by the culture... That you can't see them for what they, you can't see them spiritually. So, when you say, in any English word, right, conjures up those <laughs> concepts that are soaked, steeped in Christian imagery, and most Jews who reject religion reject them because <laughs> they're quite right in rejecting the culture's version of those abstractions, and they're quite right to reject those things. The God that they reject should, in fact, be rejected, they're quite right about that. In the imagery that he set up. So what do you do? You escape into You use the right language. But what happens if you're, bro- if you're brought up speaking the right language and you have the wrong ideas? What do you do then? Do you know what happens to young Israelis? They're brought up with a language which is a holy language which is steeped in those concepts. But what do you, what do you escape into? What words do you use? Right? When you talk Hebrew in a secularized country and you use that language right, that the Jewish people always avoid it so that the word should always retain their special spirituality. So they spoke Yiddish, they spoke Ladino, they spoke any language. But they left that for Torah, so that a child heard a Torah word. He'd hear Torah. What do you do with a person... I mean, how I to illustrate it for you. What a, what a, you take a Hebrew word, yeah? You take... Let's say you sit down with a young Hebrew speaker, and you want to learn some Chumash. So you come across a verse that says that God made, yeah, when He made the world, He looked at the world and, in his, and He saw Kitov Ma'od. That the world is very good. Tov ma'od. That means that he looked at his world and he judged it as very good. The, the word tov ma'od in Hebrew, ma'od is a very problematic word. It means very. The commentaries ask the question there, why does the Torah say very good? If, if God made something good, it's a, as good as it can be. What does very mean? There's a problem here. You don't add words. The Torah doesn't add words that are necessary. If Hashem made something that's good, it's the ultimate good. There's not half goods by Him and then there's something that's very good. So what does the word ma'od mean, very? It means bad. It means death. It means the angel of death. It means the Eitzahora. It means, this is what they say, the commentary say, the word ma'od means the fact that there's evil in the world, because now you can achieve genuine good, there's amazing things that they say. The word ma'od, in case you didn't notice, is the same letters as Adam. The word ma'od, which means very, is the same letters as Adam, which means man, which means a creature who is always more. Adam, do you know the word Adam means? I shall be like that which transcends. That's what the word Adah means, which is what Ma'od means. One of the applications of the word Ma'od in Hebrew is money. Do you know that? Bechol Ma'odekha, with your money. Because money is a medium that translates itself into more. Ma'od in Hebrew adds up to 45. Because ma in Hebrew is a question, what? And a question in Hebrew is always the way you indicate that which can't be quantified. Since you can't say what it is, you simply say, what is it? Like we say, Hashem. Like how great are your works? Why do, what do you mean, how great? You see, you speak English, so you think it's like a rhetorical, poetic, Shakespearean, Oh, how goodly, and oh, how great. <laughs> yes, that's what you think. But it's not, there's nothing poetic, and, and it, it doesn't mean that. In Torah, it means, how great are your works, because I can't say how great they are. So all I can say is, how great are they? Right? We say, me kamachaba who is like you, Hashem? So you brought up in a Shakespearean, it means, oh, how you know who is like unto thee? But, but it doesn't mean that mi kamocha doesn't mean who is like you. It means since we can't say anybody's like you, all we can say is who he is. The word Elohim is mi Eile. Yes? It's it's a question. So the word Ma'ad is an incredible word. It's an un, untold depth in the study of that word what it means. Right? Yet you you know what happens when you learn with an Israeli? You come to the words Tov Mo'od and he looks at it. You know what he sees in Tov Mo'od? Eight out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) Because Tov Mo'od is what the Mo'ra gives at ten o'clock at night when she's tired and she's not giving Mitsuyan anymore. (laughs) That's what it is. That's what it is. And a child brought up in Israel sees Tov Mo'od. They see God looking down at the world and giving it eight out of ten. And you never get that out of his head. (laughs) That's what it is. And it goes on and on, it goes on and on. The word, the word Agada, the Hebrew word Agadah. You know what that means, Agadah? The non-halachic parts of Torah, of the Talmud, are called Agadot. Agadah means, it means the deeper level, the word gad in Hebrew. The root gad means to draw down, to draw along. right? Gad means, like, like the gadah of a, the bank of a river is that which both obstructs and stops and draws the river along is in Aramaic means draw, pull. Right? Good asik good achis or Halachic concepts mean, meaning to draw up or to draw down. Right? Gad, Gad in fact is the name very connected to the Hebrew concept of Mazal. Mazal means, take the word Mazal, just while we're on the subject, incidentally, we <coughs> really get carried away. The word Mazal is a zodiac. Right? The maz- mazal translates as a zodiac sign. The Mazalot are the twelve zodiac constellations. That's what Mazal means. It's translated as lack. Mazaltov That means good luck. Right? So how do you hear, How does a how, person who doesn't have a Torah language, how do they hear mazal? Do you know what the word mazal means? To flow down. No zel in Hebrew means a liquid. Mazal means, zel means, yeah, it means katal. It should, it, should, it should flow like dew. Mazal means that which flows down from the hidden world and, and, and flows like a liquid into this world. That's what it means. So when you say mazaltov, do you know what you mean when you say Mazalto? You mean that there should be an auspicious energy here flowing down from another world that should invest this event. You mean, may this marriage or this event that we're discussing now be invested with a higher energy from the abstract world. Right? But you're not, you're not a person who doesn't know that yet? Mazalto, good luck. Do you know what that means? Your marriage should be blessed. You should get three cherries when you pull the handle. Yeah, you should get three. That's what you mean. May Lady Luck yeah, shine her face upon you. That is pure idolatry. It's, even a, it's pure stupidity. That's not even idolatry. It's insulting to an idolater. <laughs> to, mean, to mean good luck. Do you know what good luck means? That there's nothing governing this. You should be lucky. That's Judaism. When you say mazel tov, you mean this should be governed by a higher power. It should be lifted. It should be connected, not disconnected. Do you hear the opposite of the meaning here in the word? The word agadah means it should draw down. So the agadot... The Agadah of, Tal, of, 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 uh, of Talmud, the Agadita are those parts that connect with the deeper world. They connect this world with the, all the Kabbalistic secrets in the Talmud. The deepest Kabbalistic secrets. Kabbalah means received from another place, from a higher thing. Right? Ka, all the Agadot, all these parts of the Talmud, are those that connect with the higher world. What does Agadah mean in modern Hebrew? Fairy tales. Agadot Yapaniot. Japanese fables. That's what it is. So if you're a little girl or boy growing up in Israel, you get a book called Agadot Yapaniot. You got a book when you were four called Japanese Fairy Tales. That's what you got, right? Aesop's, what's the name? That's what it is. Agadot. So now you take a young Israeli speaker, you put him down, you say, we're going to learn Agadot of Torah. So to him, you say fairy tales. That's what you say. So how do you and it goes on and on. Do you know what Selem Elohim means? Salem Elohim. It means in, in divine image. The word Salem in Hebrew today means matzleimah. It means a photograph. That's what it means. A photographic image. So how do you begin to... And it goes on and on and on. Do you know what Chashmal means? Hashmal is one of the one of the divine emanations of energy from a higher source. I don't want to say angels. Hashmal is one of these higher things. Today, in means electricity. So if you've grown if you've grown up with a thing called electricity, so now you have this name, this angel called electricity. That's it is. So, my Rebbe once said, "It's miraculous that Israelis can study Torah. It happens that miracle." That happens. Baruch Hashem, it happens. Uh, become great. Of course, when they, when they become great, they have a tremendous advantage, because they have the language. They have the language is wonderful, of course. But you have to get around this. And while we have a good laugh at them, we should be laughing <coughs> at us. Because that's just a problem with the language. But we have a problem with our thoughts. And it doesn't matter if you speak Hebrew or English or Greek, it doesn't make no difference. You have got in your head, we have in our heads. The most anti-Jewish and non-Jewish, we have such humiliatingly anti-Jewish and non-Jewish nonsense. That every time we look at anything, our eyes, are Greek eyes, our thoughts are Greek thoughts. We have the perversion, we have it in us. The first work of spiritual development here is to cleanse the tool itself. You have, to, you have to use the, you have a broken tool with which to fix the tool. No, but can you imagine how deep and troubling this is? Every time you walk out there, every time you, every time you look at a, one of their billboards out there, and you smile, or you think it's cute, or you think it's clever, this, you, you, you speak in Greek. Every time you see something in the culture, every, time, every, every bit of immorality or stupidity, or, or non-spirituality, everything out there that they live for, that they teach their children, all the inconsistencies, and all the inner fractures, those things that they claim are immoral, and yet allow those things to be depicted. All those speeches they make about women's dignity and and rights of women and and feminist ideology and so forth, then they, they prostitute them at every turn and humiliate them and denigrate them. All those things out there. Those are your eyes. Those are our eyes. And therefore, that's the problem. The problem is that there is beauty out there. There's tremendous beauty and tremendous depth and tremendous wisdom. And this Greek aesthetic and this Greek science. It has its place in Torah. It needs to be brought in and it lives in the tents of, of shame. That's where it lives and where it belongs. But it comes in with all its connotations and all its contamination. And it's not the images that are seen. It's the eyes that see. And therefore, next week when we, we make our feeble attempt to lift that darkness just a little, What the work is and what it has to mean to us is that we are trying to take these old, soiled eyes that look out and look in, and we're trying to use them to try and see something different. And the first thing that has to be seen differently is the self. We have to try to look inward differently. We're not talking here about a rejection of the culture and a rejection of its wisdom and its greatness. That's not the point. It is halachically correct that it needs to be translated. The Torah itself brings it in and translates it. But when that translation happens, there's this oscillation between bringing in its beauty and its meaning and its correct application and its effect on the viewer at the same time. And there's this earthquake that happens when it's brought in. The earthquake is particularly potent in Israel, where these things are felt more sharply, where the exile, paradoxically, is more is more intense, where the medium itself, and the language itself, cause this polarisation. But we feel it everywhere, we feel it everywhere. Maybe we're privileged in one strange way, to live in a place where you have a little more access to seeing its falsehood and its superficiality. And therefore, maybe we should uh, perhaps just agree, we should resolve that uh, next week when we when we fast and we we celebrate or commemorate these events, that it should be an abstinence not only from From food that we take into our bodies, but also those things that we take into our minds. And of course, if we do that properly, we can hope to achieve just the beginning of a process of not only purifying that which is viewed, but the viewer, him or herself.